Alpha is a six-week course exploring the big questions of life. It's for anyone interested in discussing spirituality, God, and the Christian faith in a non-judgmental, open-minded context. Each week, there's a great meal, a short talk, and discussion in small groups. People who come to the course are from lots of different backgrounds. No faith, other faiths, brought up Christian and agnostic. Everyone is welcome. Catch up on each week's talk here. Just a quick recap. Last week, we um, looked at some of the objective historical reasons for putting faith in Jesus as the Son of God. This week, I want to sort of shift gears slightly. And for the remainder of the course, we're going to be concentrating on more of the subjective and uh, personal questions. How um, can we experience God if God is real? Now, central to the Christian preaching uh, from its earliest stages was not just a belief in the resurrection and the preaching of the resurrection. This Jesus who was crucified has been raised from the dead. That's what they um, hung their preaching on at the start. But it was also actually an experience primarily the experience of God's love and primarily the experience of God's love through Jesus. Any uh, cursory reading of the New Testament will reveal God's love to the world as its central theme. If you have been to a um, football game, someone will inevitably hold up a sign with John 3.16 on it, the most famous uh, verse in the Bible, I think, um, which says, God so loved the world that he gave his son. It's the most famous for a reason because it is encapsulating of the central theme of the New Testament. But somewhat strangely, throughout um, the New Testament, this love of God is intrinsically tied to Jesus' death, his death on a cross. And it's that subject that I want to have a look at this week. Now, unfortunately, there are some negative um, experiences of how the cross has been portrayed to people down the year, and I want to address those at the outset, if I may. Firstly, for some people, the cross has become so ubiquitous, uh, so accustomed to it, that it's kind of lost all its meaning. Lots of people wear little gold crosses as uh, pieces of jewellery without ever really knowing why. Uh, it's used to sell All Saints clothing from my dear homeland. Uh, Russell Brand, another person from my dear homeland, has a tattoo of a cross on his arm next to the Hindu god Ganesha. Just kind of hedging his bets there. Um, But for some people it's become so ubiquitous it's sort of lost all its meaning. For others, the opposite problem is true. The cross hasn't lost all meaning. Rather, it's been loaded with so much negative meaning that it is almost unbearable to think about. It speaks of guilt, and it speaks of shame, and it speaks of impossible standards and authority figures belittling and demonising other people. Now, before I was a Christian, that was pretty much my experience of the cross. I went to this sort of very high Anglican chapel. Uh, It was pretty much Catholic in uh, its um, churchmanship. And the cross was there, and I would just look at it thinking, that is there to tell me how terrible God thinks of me, and I will never be able to uh, understand Uh, how I could possibly see God as anything else. Now, these are big problems, either it being meaningless or it being packed with negative meaning. And so if you relate to either, can I encourage you to um, try and hear uh, its true message uh, or what I believe its true message is this evening? 
Because the reality is, for the first Christians and for Christianity ever since the time of Jesus, the cross was neither meaningless nor terrible. It was, in fact, and is, I believe, quite frankly, the most beautiful, wonderful news the world has ever heard. So, to hear the cross for what it actually means, I want to start by asking you two questions. Here we go. Firstly, can you consider what you believe God to be like in his core? If you believe in God, or even if you could just do the philosophical exercise of if God does exist, what do you think about him to his core? And particularly from the Judeo-Christian standpoint, consider God as he is first revealed in the creation story of Genesis particularly how he relates to Adam and Eve. Now, just a little caveat, I don't necessarily believe that Adam and Eve were real people. I don't think it necessarily matters that they're real people. There's much bigger things going on uh, than that. But nevertheless, this story is very important to the whole history of God's people. And so Adam and Eve stand there as figures for us to um, understand more about who we are and more about who God is. So what did they do wrong? Now, many of people have grown up with the idea that Adam and Eve were disobedient, disobedient little boys and girls, weren't they? They were naughty. They did the wrong thing. They just didn't do what they were told. Now, of course, Adam and Eve in the story, they contravened God's guidance for eating from the tree. So yes, there's, of course, an element of disobedience to it. But is that at the heart of it? Are we really saying that God went to all the trouble of creating a universe of limitless beauty and scope, of dandelions and supernovas, of honeybees, far-off galaxies, because at his fundamental core, what he wanted was for people to just do what they're told. What does that say about God if that's the case? He's like a strict school teacher, one with a bit of an authority complex, desperate to exercise control, who loses his temper at the first sign of disobedience. A different but no less unhelpful view of Adam and Eve's sin is not that the main issue was one of disobedience, but rather pride, a desire to be equal to God. This is certainly what the serpent in the story suggests. If they eat from the tree, they will know good and evil, and they will be like God, he says to them. So are they guilty at their core of going after an equality with God? And if so, again, what does that say about God? He is some sort of slightly insecure egomaniac with a superiority complex this time who demands unwavering devotion. You should not get ideas above your station. You should not try and be, I need to be God, you should not be God. He's like a sort of angry Hollywood diva who throws all her toys out of the, all his toys, out of the pram because things haven't gone his way. He has a hissy fit and he curses the whole of humanity for all of time as a result. Now, I'm exaggerating for effect. But I want to suggest that both of these don't really do justice to the story or to the overriding themes of the Bible at all. The truth is, the biblical picture paints God as having neither an authority nor a superiority complex. In fact, what Genesis says about God is that everything he creates is good. But it's only after he creates humanity that the refrain changes from things being good to things being very good. Perfect 
in every way, in fact. God cannot help but do beautiful, wonderful things, but it's humanity who is the apex of creation. It's the pinnacle of everything that God has created is you and me and everyone else. We are the real stars of the show. And Adam and Eve, this pinnacle of creation, walk in the cool of the evening with God. So rather, the picture that it portrays is that we weren't made to be God's obedient servants. We weren't made to massage his slightly insecure ego. We were made to be with him. We were made in perfect relational unity in creation with him. So we are described, in fact, as God's icons, his image bearers. Humanity is, in fact, created godlike mini-gods, in fact. We could push it that far. We are co-creators with him. We get to name the animals. We get to go out beyond the borders of Eden and create into the chaos just as he has done. We are tasked with being like God, making things wonderful and beautiful and very, very good. So what then is at the heart of Adam and Eve's sin? Fundamentally, it's neither arbitrary rule-breaking nor grasping at divinity. Rather, the heart of Adam and Eve's sin was failing to be who they actually already were. They grasped a divinity that they actually already had, but one that they wanted independent of God. Ultimately, Adam and Eve's sin was to go it alone, to reject the love and the partnership of God they were created for. And so what then does this make God? Well, he is the loving, generous, abundant creator who gives humanity the pinnacle of his creation, nevertheless the dignity to be able to choose to do it by themselves or with him, to go for independence or to be as they are, the divine vice-regents of God in humanity with him. So God doesn't primarily want obedience. He doesn't primarily want worship. He primarily wants us. He wants you and me. And he still does. So, let us then talk about sin, shall we? I know that's what you came for. I know I've drifted onto uncomfortable ground. No one wants to hear about this. Apart from maybe John. He did say that. <laughs> yes, and he's nodding. John, very strange. Uh, who wants to talk about it, though, honestly, really? Part of the problem, I think, is the word sin can sound uh, so out of date to our postmodern 21st century ears, can it not? For many, it's kind of an archaic concept. It belongs to a kind of bygone era of uptight puritanicalism, a time when women shouldn't bear their ankles lest they cause men to fall into sin and for some reason have sex with their ankles or something like that. <laughs> In fact, sin in our contemporary culture is something very different. It's a little bit naughty, but nice. It's ice cream. It's double chocolate truffles. They're sinful, but they're so good. Or it could be a little bit risque. Fifty Shades is sinful, but it's just harmless fun, isn't it? At its most extreme, I guess sin is a little darker. If you've read Frank Miller's uh, comic book Sin City or seen the movies, it's sort of a, a locale whose population is continually engaged in, in lap dancing and ultraviolence, but there's still something alluring and intoxicating and appealing about sin. 
because sin these days, you see, is always about the pleasurable consumption of something. More specifically, it's the pleasurable consumption of something that we know that someone somewhere else really thinks we should not be doing. Which is, while it feels a little bit naughty, but not in a serious way. It's just mischievousness. It's just enjoyable, fun. So, anyone who then starts talking about sin in terms of it not being a very good thing is clearly uptight, is clearly a bit of a killjoy, is probably a stinking hypocrite, is a religious person of the worst sort, and really we do not want to hear from them. So, for all of these reasons, I'm not going to talk about sin. You can breathe a big sigh of relief. Because this understanding of sin is not what I mean at all. What I do mean and more importantly, what Jesus means by this word that I am now not going to mention is something much bigger than this. And this comes with a sort of PG-13 warning. What Jesus means by the term sin, which I'm not going to say anymore, is this. The human propensity to fuck things up. Or for brevity's sake, HPFU. Or because we live in the post-Twitter X world, hashtag HP. FU, the human propensity to fuck things up. This is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident. It's also our active inclination to break things. Be those moods, promises, relationships, our own well-being or other people's. It's the crack at the heart of everything. And it's the crack at the heart of everyone. We F things up. And we're not just talking about moral performance here. Jesus understands both our outer actions and our inner motivations as all part and parcel of the same HPFU. For instance, unless completely psychotic, murderers don't become murderers for no reason. Murder proceeds from hatred in the same way that adultery proceeds from lust. It's all part of the crack at the heart of things, both human lives and, in fact, the whole universe. It's a cosmic, it's a social, it's an individual, personal problem. But, just in case you're in any doubt, let me take you on an imaginary trip to the cinema. And it's a cinema at the end of time. And that is the doorbell. As you walk through into the cinema, it's just you, you walk in, you sit down in a plush, velour, red seat. There's no one else there, the lights dim. And as uh, the lights dim and the curtains pull back, you hear a voice over the um, public address system. And the voice says, hello, welcome. Welcome to the cinema at the end of time. Tonight's showing is going to be the film of your life. Everything from the moment you were born to the moment you died, everything that ever happened, everything you ever said, everything you ever did, everything you ever thought, is coming up on the screen now. And you sit back into the, seat, into the chairs. Time is not an issue. You have the whole of eternity to watch this thing. And you watch it. Everything you've ever said, everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever done up on the screen in huge, multiplex-sized screen. How do you feel? For me, it would be exhilarating at times. Wonderful. Tear-jerking. But at others, deeply embarrassing. The film ends. And then the lights come up and the voice uh, comes back on and he says, 
uh, there's now going to be a second showing. And every single person who featured in the film is going to come down and sit next to you and watch it with you. And the doors open and every single person who featured in that film walks in, they take their seats and you watch the thing again. How, how do you feel? Again, exhilarating, I, I imagine, at times, and also quite squirm-inducing. Because we F things up. And HPFU is bad news, and like any bad news, it's not very welcome, is it? Who wants to hear about this stuff? Can't we just ignore it? But actually, I want to suggest that there's actually some very good news here. Because in addressing it, we acknowledge that it exists. And in acknowledging that it exists, we start being true to our real selves, who we actually are. Not the selves we'd like to be or we'd like other people to see us, but actually who we really are. Taking the things that we do wrong seriously is part of taking ourselves seriously. And in doing so, don't we see that every single one of us is in the same boat? We all have it. So, let's not avoid the discomfort, but instead ask ourselves, well, the what then are we going to do about it? Well, one possibility we have is we could judge ourselves against other people. Or, more specifically, we could judge ourselves against people that we know, without a shadow of a doubt, are definitely more effed up than we are. Yes, I'm not perfect, but I'm no Hitler. Ever said that? I may have cheated on my girlfriend in college, but I haven't killed anyone. I may slate people behind their back now and again, but I'm a pretty good person, I think. I can lose it, but I'm not half as horrible as that Stephanie from Accounts. She's a right bitch. It makes us feel better for a second, does it not? And for the record, this is what I believe man-made religion always does. The Christianity of Jesus, properly understood, is most certainly not a religion. I think Jesus clearly stands against all religious attitudes wherever he comes across them. But for him, religion is certainly not a good thing. But man-made religion does tend to do this. It judges between the good and the not-so-good. Those who perform and those who don't. Those who are on the right ladder to salvation, those who are on the wrong ladder to salvation, those who are higher up on the ladder to salvation against those who are lower down. Judgment, 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 judgment. But neither religion's separation of the pure from the impure, nor our own separation of ourselves from Stephanie from accounts, gets to the heart of things. They're just like an anaesthetic. They make us feel better for a second. And this is the point at which the true message of Christianity separates itself off from all religious and all human judgments about goodness and morality. And it becomes, at both the same time, utterly lunatic and completely realistic. Utterly lunatic because the standard is perfection. And none of us measure up, do we? The Bible describes God as perfect. In him there's no shadow of darkness whatsoever. He is like a blinding bright white light. And in his son, Jesus, we see the perfect life. The life we're all supposed to live. 
And so this is the standard, not just moral perfection, but perfectly pure motivations as well. Perfectly pure hearts too. It's not just about doing the right thing, it's about being the right thing as well. The standard isn't ours, it's his and it's 100%. So it's not about being a good person, a good person, which my kids are obsessed with. Are they a good person? Is Elon Musk a good person? I don't know. They're obsessed with it, but it's not about that at all, whatever that actually means. It's about being completely perfect all the time in every single element of your life. Utterly lunatic. And yet, completely realistic. Because the standard is perfection. And none of us measures up, do we? Every single one of us fails. Really, absolutely everyone. And so we're all in the same boat. So, of all the things Christianity is, it is not about gathering together all the good people to be shiny and happy and have perfect, smiling, wonderful, glowing teeth and excluding the bad, alien, repulsive ones for the very fact that Christianity says everyone's a bit dirty. So Jesus, unlike all those who purport to follow him, doesn't keep a register of clean and unclean. He says, you're all unclean. And so in its utter lack of realism, Christianity becomes actually very realistic indeed. Christianity is a league of the guilty. Not all guilty of the same things or in the same way or to the same degree, but enough for us to recognise each other. The human propensity to fuck things up is like a family resemblance. And we begin to see, when we're humble enough to do so, what stabbing your, back in, stabbing your colleague in the back has in common with teasing a kid at the school gates. Or, to get more graphic, what bombing innocent children has in common with having that affair with someone you didn't even really like. Now, of course, not that I am saying for one second that those examples are all of equal moral value. They are clearly not. But what they are is all hewn from the same cloth, our human propensity to F things up. So what are we to do? Does that mean we should all just accept our effed upness, give in to the fact that, yeah, okay, we're all a bit broken, aren't we? We're all a bit imperfect, and let's just get on with life. Well, not if we're going to take seriously the victims. Not if we're going to take seriously the people who've lost their lives at the hands of mass murderers. Not if we're going to take seriously the child whose mother went out one night and is never, ever coming back. Not if we're going to take seriously the bullied kid who grew up completely lacking in any self-confidence, who can't look anyone in the eye, the jilted lover, the bitched-about colleague, all the ones that we've hurt. Not if we're going to take them seriously. Just saying, hey, we're all a bit screwed up, aren't we? It's no comfort to them. We just can't ask those who suffer because of our brokenness to forget about the harm we've caused to make us feel better about ourselves. Where on earth is the justice in any of that? And what of God? Should he just sit back and ignore all of this? What on earth, what kind of God would that make him? Unmoved by human trafficking, unconcerned by the ch child who was told he was a huge disappointment by his parents, 
God sitting there in his heavenly armchair, smoking his pipe, not really caring at all. But if we are all in the same HPFU boat, isn't the question, what is God going to do with any of us? Will he just leave us to flounder? Maybe he already has. Could you blame him if he had? It's just a question. Let me tell you what he actually does. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is born in a feeding trough amongst some animals and some shit. He lives a life of no material wealth. He doesn't have a home or a shelter. He spends a large amount of his time with the first century equivalent of paedophiles and crack whores and morally bankrupt lobbyists and thieves. Those so clearly exhibiting all the human propensity to F things up that they don't bother trying to cover it up anymore. As well, of course, as those who find it still too difficult to admit, even to themselves. And amongst these people, he teaches about a life of seemingly such impossible standards. Turn the other cheek. Not just no adultery, but no lust either. Not just no murder, but no hatred too. Love your enemy. Pray for them. Forgive them. Be good to those who despise you. That everyone is left with the question, how on earth could anyone live like that? And then Jesus goes and lives exactly that perfect life he's been talking about. And he also feeds the sick and he, sorry, heals the sick and he feeds the hungry and he calms the storm and he befriends the unlovable. And he stands up to all injustice wherever he sees it. In Jesus there is none of the sin. Just perfect, pure, wonderful humanity. And Jesus is what we are all supposed to be. And yet he doesn't distance himself from us in all our brokenness and corruption. He throws himself into it. But this is not all. Because if it was all, Jesus would be just saying, you're effed up, but I love you. So don't worry too much about the effed upness, because I'm here. It's going to be okay. That's not enough for him. And I don't think it should be enough for us. It's not enough because God cannot belittle the problem like this. It's too serious and he can't ignore it because it's too destructive. Instead, he deals with it. He destroys it. He disrobes sin of all its power. He exposes sin for its ugly reality and he kills it off once and for all. On the cross, Jesus is like the lightning rod for all sin, all of time. All individual, all corporate, all global, all systemic, all nationalistic, all cosmic sin, all of it, everything that is wrong with the universe forever, all of it on him in that moment. Everything you've ever done, everything I've ever done, everything that's ever been done to you that has caused you hurt and pain, he takes it all in that moment on the cross. It's drawn into his body as he's nailed to that cross on the lonely hill where no one really watches him die and the weight of it crushes him pure perfect Jesus God himself he experiences the one thing that his divinity should never experience an excruciating and lonely death and in the midst of it he prays father forgive them they don't know what they're doing this is the love of God not that we loved him but that he first loved us and gave up himself 
for our sake and every other person's sake. At Calvary, God in Jesus frees us all from the power of sin, from death, which is the ultimate consequence of sin, and from the devil. Now, Jesus is the only one capable of doing this. This is why Jesus matters. Because he is fully human, he can represent all of us in our humanity at the cross. We are there with him, but we are gloriously not experiencing what he does. But because he is also fully God, he is able also to fully represent God at the cross. His perfect justice, his perfect love, and to destroy sin because he is the one with power over it. He gives it what it deserves. He opens up his arms and he says to us, you go free. He brings heaven and earth together for the first time since Eden so that we, every single one of us, can be returned to what we were made for. This is why Jesus cries out on the cross, it's finished, it is over, it is done. Because he did what no one else could do. At the cross, God's love wins forever. And the world is changed fundamentally. Has there ever been a more perfect display of selfless, self-giving love to a world in need? Uh, it's a bit like this. So imagine uh, this light here. This is God. There in all his beautiful 100 watt glory. And here is you. Here is me. A human. Perfectly human in every way. Physically alive, intellectually alive, emotionally alive, sexually alive. Here I am. Perfect relation with God. This is what sin does. I'm separated off. Here's Jesus, one just like me. Human, but unlike me, in all perfection. Physically alive, intellectually alive, emotionally alive, sexually alive. Here he is, in perfect relationship with his Father, no sin. This is what happens on the cross. Everything, for all of time, taken on him. So that we can be put back to where we always belong restored to perfect relational unity with the God who made us and made us for him. That's the message of the cross. What does it mean? To end, it means three things. Firstly, it means lots of things. It means these particular three things tonight. It means God is love. He isn't angry. You need never doubt his love for you ever again. Not once, not ever. The cross stands as the defining moment of history and it says that God is for you. He could not bear to be separated from you forever, for a second longer. Secondly, it means that we never ever need to pay our way or prove ourselves to him. In the light of the message of the cross, all our attempts to be good boys and good girls, to impress God, to do all the right things, to make sure that he's pleased with us, they are all utterly futile. Because we'll never be good enough anyway. But he is. And he's already done it all for us. Such is the grace of God that he says, be free. 
each one of you be free from all religious, all legalistic, all moralistic obligations. There is nothing you can do, as one writer put it, to make him love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. This is always true. And thirdly, it means that change is possible. All our hurts, all our pains and our scars and our losses, they can all be healed. The truth is many of us will go through life carrying the things that either we've done or that have been done to us. We carry them with us. It can be in the form of shame, it can be in the form of self-hatred, it can be in the form of not wanting to talk about that ever again, it can be in the form of feeling like there is something wrong with you, something broken with you. Now, self-help, medication, they may be of some use to treating the symptoms, but no amount of these will ever get to the heart of the problem because the problem is a sin problem and that needs a spiritual solution and Jesus is the only one who can do it. And he does it, and he's already done it, by pouring out limitless forgiveness to every single person, removing every last scrap of shame. You know that thing that you want to say sorry for over and you know that thing over and over again, God, I'm so sorry for that, I'm so sorry. Do you know what the Bible says? He says, I'll remember your sins no more. So when you're going, I'm, I, I'm so sorry, he's going, I don't know what you're talking about. As far as the east is from the west, is that far enough for you? As we often say, Jesus is like the trash man of the universe. What he comes along to do is to pick up your stinking bags of trash, the disgusting thing with the fish guts and the bin juice flowing out of it and he picks them up and he burns them up forever and he says it's gone go free this is the love of God and he looks at you and he says look into my eyes this is because I love you uh, there's a passage in the Old Testament and I'll finish with this it says this come let us reason together by that means let us use our brains let us use our logic here let us reason together. This makes sense. Settle our thoughts on the reality of what I will do. This is not wishful thinking. This is not hoping. This is using our minds going, let us reason together. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make you as white as the pure driven snow. Though they are like red as crimson, I will make them white as wool. This is the message of the cross. It means that God is love, that you never need to work for his affection ever again, and that you can be changed. It's wonderful.